If you guys need a Bible, you can go ahead and raise your hand. Tom is in the back and he has some Bibles. We'd love you to be turning some pages this morning. You can also use your device. Go to the ESV version. Acts chapter 7 is where we're going to be this morning. Acts 7. It's kind of the second part in our two-part series covering Stephen, the martyr, the first martyr of the early church. We're in week 14 here in our Acts series. Have you ever asked the question, what's really going on? Have you ever said that to yourself or to a friend or to a spouse or to a son or a daughter? And have you ever asked that question, what's really going on? I would really like to know what's going on beneath the surface. Have you ever asked it not really wanting the answer? You know what I mean? Like sometimes we're afraid to get to the bottom of what's really going on because it will expose things that have to be dealt with. So sometimes for us, we really want to know what's underlying, what's happening beneath the surface, but at the same time, we're afraid to ask. Sometimes we're much more comfortable diagnosing the symptoms of things than getting to the actual root of the problem. And we we do it with a lot of things in our lives. We do it with our, we do it with our cars. I'm one of those guys, right? You know, if the thing just keeps running, I'm just so happy, you know? I don't want to look at Scott Long when I'm saying this. Um, but we do it with our car. We do it with our health, you know? I, I know I probably need a checkup, but man, I haven't been feeling good and I'm afraid of what the doctor might have to say to me. We do it with our marriages. You know, let's just maintain if we can just get along, if we can just avoid those trigger points. Um, we do it with our relationships. We want to know what's really going on as much as we don't really want to know, but we probably do it less so when it comes to our spiritual lives, you know? We probably do it less so with our faith. And so as we, as we finish the story of Stephen, what we're gonna do is we're gonna see him getting to the root of what's really going on in the hearts of the people who are accusing him. Um, because what we're gonna see ultimately is that it was, it was resistance that was happening in the hearts of these leaders that were accusing him, a resistance to God's truth. And it was a resistance to God's truth in favor of tradition is what it was. And what happened was it had formed something in them which was a long-held pattern that led them away from God's will, from what God had had for his people all of these years. And so just to do a little recap, what we saw last week, if you remember, Stephen was seized. He was this deacon that was appointed by the apostles uh, in the early church, but he was also this brother that had all these amazing preaching and teaching gifts. He was an evangelist, but he was seized for challenging some of the Jewish traditions of some of the religious establishment of the day. And so, man, we saw something come out in Stephen Um, that actually exists in us. We saw grace and power. We saw wisdom and the fruit of the spirit. We also saw this determination and deep confidence in the way that he engaged the gospel with others. And so what we did at the end of the the sermon last week, if you were with us, is we we prayed what the disciples prayed in Acts chapter four. We prayed uh, that God would give us boldness. He would grant us that level of boldness that Stephen had to speak the truth. And not only just be able to just uh, have that kind of boldness in the way that we express the gospel, but also to do it with a gracious heart, to do it with a winsome and a welcoming 
tone. And so now as we get to chapter 7, we're going to read how Stephen defended the truth when he was accused, when he was seized, when he was locked up. And we're going to see the reaction that he received in that defense and then the consequences of it. Now, this is a, this is a long passage I'm getting ready to read. So I, I want to pray that God settles our hearts to hear it and receive it. Um, just so you know, the most important words you're going to hear from me this morning is as we read chapter 7. So I'm going to do my best to explain it and unpack it and then apply it. But these are the words that need to settle into your heart more than anything else I'm going to say. So I would pray, and I'm going to pray right now, that we would be able to listen. It's about 60 verses that we would avoid clicking over from our apps onto Facebook, and we would just let God's word settle into us and hear what Stephen does as he makes a defense. But let's pray that God would settle our hearts to hear that. Lord, we recognize our distractions, and you know our distractions, and you know uh, the shakiness and the unsettledness and the waveriness, if that's a word, of our hearts. And so God, I pray that as we read Acts chapter 7, which is words that you inspired Luke to write for our good, for the good of the church, um, Lord, that you would allow us to um, have minds and hearts that are receptive and that we would be patient and that we would be thoughtful as we read your word. And so God, would you um, allow your spirit to um, train us now and settle us now as we read your word as a church, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Chapter seven in the book of Acts says this, and the high priest said, are these things so? So basically, Stephen has been seized, they bring him in, and the high priest says, hey, they're making these accusations, men are coming up um, accusing you, just tell me, are these things actually true? And Stephen said in verse two, brothers and fathers, Hear me, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. Verse nine, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt and he died, he and our fathers, 
And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamar in Shechem. Verse 17, but as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. And he dealt shrewdly with our race and he forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. And at this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed... Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Verse 23, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, man, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Verse 30, now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. Verse 35, this Moses whom they rejected saying, hey, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And so they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. And it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring me to slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Raphon, the images that you made to worship and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Verse 44, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. 
Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Let's just stop there for now. So the first thing we see here is that Stephen gives a rebuttal to the accusations made. He gives a rebuttal, and then we're going to see a little bit later that he gives a rebuke. But then in the end, we see that he is received by Jesus. So the first thing we see here is Stephen gives this rebuttal. Well, first off is that he's not one to give a short rebuttal, our boy Stephen, right? If we know one thing, it's that this brother's a preacher, right? Doesn't know how to keep it short and sweet. The high, it's amazing and super complimentary that most of you aren't laughing more than that when I say that. But the high priest asks Stephen in verse 1, he wants to confirm that these accusations against him are true. And he asks, he says, are these things they're speaking against you true? Against what they're saying, you've been saying against the law of Moses in the temple. Are they true? And I think the first thing that's important for us to note is the way that Stephen responds. And it's that he doesn't defend himself personally. In fact, if you were just to read this, you'd be like, Stephen, did you even hear the question that was asked? Because it doesn't sound like you really directly answered the question. We'll find that he did, but he doesn't do it in a way that we might do it, which is immediately to just defend ourselves personally. But what does Stephen do? Well, he gives a model for us in how he responds to people that push against us in the faith that we hold. And it's that he goes to scripture. And he takes them through really just this survey of Old Testament history to show them the pattern of Israel has been to resist the rescuers that God has given them. And so he starts by mentioning Joseph in verse 9. And when we think about Joseph, we remember that Joseph had 12 brothers who were the 12 patriarchs of Israel. And they ended up being jealous of Joseph's position in their family. And what happens is in this fit of jealousy and rage, they sell Joseph to Egypt. But what happens to Joseph is God delivers him. And then he uses Joseph to deliver his entire family from starvation when a severe famine hits the land. We move 400 years later and the children of Israel now have become enslaved to Egypt. They become enslaved to Pharaoh and the entire nation. So what does God do then? Well, God raises up a man called Moses that we read about in verses 20 through 43. God delivers Moses from death as an infant. And then 80 years later, 80 years, calls him to deliver his people from oppression and slavery right? But what happens here is that we see this pattern. The Israelites repeatedly rejected Moses, this man that God sent them to deliver them. Remember what we just read about the incident with the golden calf in verse 41 and 42? This was indicative of a pattern that would continue with the children of Israel. 
through the years, through the centuries, as they rejected their rulers and instead adopted the traditions and the practices of other nations, which, of course, included the worship of foreign gods. This was the thing that Israel repeatedly would fall back into. So what Stephen does here for us is he illustrates that, in fact, they are the ones. They were the ones who had been disobeying the commandments of God by rejecting the leaders God had given them. It wasn't Stephen Stephen was taking what Jesus Christ had done when he fulfilled the law and he took the message of Jesus, he took the message of the gospel that was handed to him after Jesus' ascension and he said, this is how we're to understand these things. But once again, like we see in Israel's past, they had rejected the leaders that God had brought them, including Stephen. And then of course, at the very end, he brings up the temple in verses 44 and 50. Um, In the days of Moses, we remember that God dwelled in a tent, and then eventually a a temple uh, when King Solomon came into rule. And the point Stephen is making here is that you can't confine God to a temple. So the, the charges they were bringing against Stephen by talking about some of the words that Jesus had said about the temple, about destroying the temple, they were twisting those words because they weren't believing that Jesus was now the temple that had come to dwell with them as God had dwelled with the Israelites when they had a temple. What Stephen was trying to say is you can't just confine God to a temple, which is why we now have Jesus. Now, the two times Melissa and I have gone camping in our married life, what happens is is we have a great time and then it's time to get in our tent uh, for the night. And it's like claustrophobia has a new name and it's my name, right, at that point. Uh, Man, I just hate being confined like that, which is why we've only been camping twice uh, in our marriage. God's not confined. You can't confine God. The temple was there to give testimony to the fact that God was with his people. It contained the Ten Commandments. It contained this thing called the Ark of the Covenant, which God had given his people so they wouldn't forget that he had delivered them from the Egyptians. So when Jesus came, all of that changed. So Stephen illustrates to them through scripture that there's been this pattern of God's people resisting God's rescuers. And so this is Stephen's rebuttal to them. But he ends with a rebuke. And he does it to show these religious leaders that they had continued in these stubborn patterns of unbelief and disobedience of their forefathers. Look what it says in verse 51. And this is Stephen being not very subtle now. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murder. You who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. So Stephen completes this historical timeline to show that this resistance continues all the way to Jesus, who he calls the righteous one. So when Jesus came, he became the temple of God. 
When Jesus came, he was now the presence of God among the people. He was and is the righteous one who kept the law and would be the sacrificial lamb to atone for the sins of the world. That's the gospel. That's the good news. He was the one who would dwell with his people forever in their hearts through the Holy Spirit until the day of his return. By the way, this is the current reality that we live in. But the religious leaders, they resisted Jesus. Even though he'd been prophesied for years by all of their forefathers. So naturally, they would be offended when Stephen quoted Jesus. In John chapter 2, verse 19, when Jesus said, Destroy this temple, referring to himself, and in three days I will raise it up. See, what had happened here is that these were people who had elevated the laws of Moses above Jesus, who came to not abolish the law, Jesus said, but to fulfill the law, to be the requirements for the law, because it was never going to be the keeping of the law that could save a person. It was never going to be circumcision, we'll keep this PG, It was never going to be circumcision, this outward ritual commanded by God that saved a person. It was always going to be what Stephen referred to as an inward circumcision of the heart. See, because here's the thing, keeping the law of Moses means nothing if it's what you think justifies you in the sight of God. How do we do that? How do we do that? What would be the equivalent of what Stephen is describing for us today? In other words, what are the rites and the rituals we believe amounts to righteousness for us? Well, here's a few. I'm an American. That qualifies me. I'm a conservative. That qualifies me. Everybody's getting quiet now. I was born into a Christian family. That qualifies me. I was baptized. That qualifies me. I attend a church. I tithe to a church. I affirm Christian morals. I hold to Christian values. I practice charitable acts of service. I'm not here to debate those things with you other than to say that if we believe this is what qualifies us before God, then we are stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears, and resistant to the Holy Spirit. We are saying, I need you to really listen to me, we are saying that Jesus was a man who did not need to die. Because this heritage that we identify with and the deeds that we do are good enough to make a person good. We are saying that God lied when he sent Jesus. And if God lied when he sent Jesus, it means that Jesus wasn't really God because he was just carrying on with the lie of God. He was suffering for something that was unnecessary because we had it in us to take care of it, to achieve our salvation. Now this, what I just described, to make a point, to put a finer point on it, is what I would say is a demonic reality. And it's lived out, I would say, very subtly on the more, I would say, like brightly adorned stages of our churches, some of our churches. Our government 
our organizations, our news channels, our podcasts, and with our leaders that as Paul reminds us of in 2 Timothy 3.5, have the appearance of godliness but deny its power. Now some of you are gonna say and you're thinking right now, we know that, Ronnie. You keep going on and on. Do we though? Do we? You think the keeping of our religious traditions is something American Christians don't have any problem with? Let's chat about that for a minute. Have you ever had the experience of someone putting words in your mouth? It's a horrible experience. You'll be with somebody and they start saying things that you said that you didn't say. Christians can put words into God's mouth. We can say things that he never said. And this is how this thing called legalism spreads in the church. Well, what do I mean when I say this word legalism? Maybe you've heard that word a lot in church and you kind of know what it means, but you're not sure. Well, here's what R.C. Sproul, how he defines legalism. He says, abstracting the law of God from its original concept, context. He says, the legalist isolates the law from the God who gave the law. He is not so much seeking to obey God or honor Christ as he is to obey rules that are devoid of any personal relationship. So how are some of those ways that we practice legalism in the church? Maybe very subtly, maybe without thinking about it. What would be some of those ways that would come up and surface in your heart today? I wrote down a few. The first one would be this, kind of old school, but I decided to go back a little bit like Stephen did. Godly women don't wear pants to church. There's some churches that still practice that. Here's another one. Christian parents don't send their children to public school. Here's another one. A Christian will never listen to music created by a non-Christian. Here's one. A godly man will never have a glass of beer. Now, that you're all quiet and you're listening, we have freedom to obey our consciences in all of these things when it comes to pants and schools and beer and music, but we should never think that they're what qualifies us as righteous, the keeping of them. And you can never use them to bind another person's conscience. Mark 7, 8, Jesus said this, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And this is what Stephen was driving at was the condition of the heart over the tradition of man. And look what happened to him when he did it to the group who promoted religious morals in law keeping. Look at verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. And then 57 but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. 58, then they cast him out of the city and stoned him and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. It's funny because if we contrast this sermon 
that Stephen preached to the one that Peter preached in Acts chapter two, we get such a different response. When Peter preached something very similar, it says that the people were cut to the heart and they said, what shall we do? Help us. We don't wanna fall into this pattern of our forefathers. What shall we do? And yet here, it's different, which means the preaching of the word, it either leads to hardness of heart, you push back even further than you did before, or it leads to a repentant spirit. God's word does those things. It does those two things to us. And what it does is it reveals a pattern in us, and it's whether we are stiff-necked or whether we are Stephen-like. Because we are constantly waging a war in our hearts against religious tradition, whether you think it or not. All the stuff that rises up, all the things that you attempt to do, all the things you do that try to alleviate your guilt, it's religious tradition. Our hearts are drawn to it. We love it. We love getting to do something rather than go before the Lord who sent Jesus to declare everything done for us. We love that. We always want surface level solutions to cancer level crises in our life. Why? Because it's easier. Because it doesn't expose. Because it's easier to say, I really want to know what's going on, but I really don't want to know what's really going on. We become stiff necked. We can resist the Holy Spirit. We can rage against the truth tellers that God brings into our life. We can stop our ears like these people did from hearing when Stephen preached the truth to them. That's why the church, that's why Substance Church must remain grounded in grace, grounded in the truth. Now listen, everything I just said, let me qualify it. Morality matters. Morality matters. But morality comes as the result of our hearts marinating in God's truth. It comes as the result of us growing in grace and affection for Jesus. Because one of the questions we have to ask ourselves here is, what would we do with Stephen if he preached at Substance next week? If he stood up here and he accused us of being stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart, would you become enraged? Would you grind your teeth at him? Would you resist him? because he was being all radical about some dude named Jesus over and above the traditions handed down from your forefathers? Let me just ask it this way if I haven't already offended you enough. If Stephen came to substance, would he see a converted people or just a conservative people? Converted can be conservative but conservative does not equal converted. If we were offended by Stephen, it would be the same as being offended by Jesus. And that's what Stephen was saying. Sam Albury said, being offended by Jesus is offensive to Jesus. As a church, we're either becoming stiff-necked by staying true to tradition or Stephen-like for staying true to truth. And by the way, to be Stephen-like is to be like Jesus. 
And it was Jesus who, after Stephen's rebuttal and rebuke, receives Stephen in the end. Notice who is received by Jesus in the end. Verse 55, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And then verse 59, it says, and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, meaning that he had passed. Why is Stephen's story so important for us? Well, first off, one way or another, we're going to pass from this life, and we will be in one of two categories when that happens. We will be stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, or we will be like Stephen, who is like Jesus. But I think Stephen's story is important for us, number one, because his testimony doesn't point to himself, but it points to Jesus. The life of Stephen is like the life of Jesus. I don't know that we see a life more closely resembling Jesus's life than Stephen's. Look what happens. He doesn't defend. When reviled, he doesn't revile. He gets to the heart of the matter. He doesn't just sit around talking about all the ways that they are offending him and accusing him and how he doesn't deserve that, but he gets to the heart of what's really going on. Then he rebukes. He rebukes those who are accusing him. He calls them to repentance. And then in the very end, just like Jesus, he forgives his enemies. Don't hold this against them, he says. Stephen's words, they mimic the words of Jesus in Mark 14. When Jesus stood before the council and the high priest asked him, he said, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This is the vision and the picture that we see Stephen seeing in the end. Stephen had a heart for Jesus that we have if we have Jesus. The grace to not defend, the wisdom to speak to the heart, the courage to rebuke, and then the compassion to forgive our enemies. To be Stephen-like is to be like Jesus. So his story is important because his testimony Moni, points to Jesus. Secondly, because the same spirit that emboldens Stephen emboldens us. It says Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. Now listen, I'm sure Stephen was afraid when they were casting him out of the city to stone him. But here's what we know. Stephen had a greater fear for the living God than he did for those who were casting him out, which is what happens for those who are filled with the Spirit of God. We need to fear, but we need to fear the right things. And we can trust that the Spirit that emboldened Stephen will embolden us to fear God in a way that emboldens us against whatever might come against us. And finally, Stephen's story is important because whatever we endure in this life is what leads to life eternal with Jesus. Stephen was the first martyr of the early church and so that fact alone is significant for us. But ultimately, Stephen is a story of future 
hope. We see an ending for Stephen, but more than that, we see a beginning for Stephen. We see an end to his time on earth, but a beginning to his time with Jesus in heaven. The story of Stephen does not have an unhopeful ending. It has an ending that leads to a world without end. So as we go through this series, the church that Jesus built has a completion date, and Stephen reminds us of that. This building that we just purchased, not really a completion date, right? This thing can just be worked on for as long as the church exists in this building. Someday the entire second floor will be all bathrooms. But the church that Jesus builds will be complete someday when we see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father like Stephen. Amen?